This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. It's a new year, Pranav, and our first episode of 2021. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We have some really exciting episodes coming up this year, but to date, we've already covered a lot of different aspects of AI and health on the show. We have. And through our conversations about technical and business aspects with AI algorithms in the context of radiology, pathology, drug discovery, now risk prediction, it's clear that the incorporation of AI into healthcare holds promise for substantially improving healthcare delivery. There are real benefits to be realized in the space, but one thing that we haven't really covered yet are the very real ethical challenges that lie ahead in implementing machine learning in healthcare. If we look broadly at machine learning algorithms introduced in fields other than medicine, we'll see examples of algorithms shown to make problematic decisions. Because AI is trained on real-world data, it risks incorporating, entrenching, and perpetuating biases in the data. Absolutely. And there are too many examples of this. AI algorithms that are used to help judges predict which criminals are most likely to reoffend have been shown to be biased against Black defendants. AI algorithms that are designed to help child protective services decide which calls require further investigation have also demonstrated racial biases. Ideally, we build algorithms that work for everyone, in health or otherwise, but machine learning algorithms that learn from existing or historical health data may not work well for everybody. Yeah, it's well known that there has not been sufficient representation of all groups in historical medical data sets. We talked about risk scores in our last episode, and a study found that one widely used cardiovascular risk score which predicted the likelihood of having, say, a heart attack, was originally developed using data from mostly white patients and was found to be less precise for non-white patients. Another study found that some facial recognition programs incorrectly classify less than 1% of lighter-skinned men, but more than a third of darker-skinned women. We can start thinking about this in the context of health, where we might rely on algorithms to, let's say, diagnose melanoma from skin and wonder whether it has similar performance on light versus dark skin, given data sets which consist of predominantly lighter skinned people. And we'll talk more about this in a future episode. Yeah. And although representation in data sets and research is a big issue, it's not the only issue at play here. In a health system riddled with inequity, algorithms using data to learn may perpetuate all sorts of biases in that data. So for example, large data sets like electronic health records or genomic data contain potential biases that can filter into any downstream algorithms. If poorer patients, for example, do worse after receiving a treatment than richer patients, maybe because they're not able to get care as frequently, machine learning algorithms may conclude that such patients are less likely to benefit from further treatment and then recommend against it. So the risk with AI is that these biases become automated and possibly hidden. We spoke about black box models in our last episode. We can't always explain the workings of a complex machine learning algorithm. And this is becoming especially important. 
healthcare systems are turning to large volumes of data and elaborately constructed algorithms for various health tasks. I want to dive into one example where widely used algorithms have been found to have a built-in racial bias. Let's hear it. So to start with some context, health systems rely on commercial prediction algorithms to identify and help patients with complex health needs. In a study published last year in Science by Dr. Ziad Obermeyer and others, um, this was 2019, which is now last last year, <laughs> researchers showed that a widely used algorithm affecting hundreds of millions of patients exhibited significant racial bias. Huh. Their finding was that at similar levels of sickness, black patients were decided to be at a lower risk than white patients by the algorithm. And the magnitude of this distortion was immense. If the algorithm's bias were removed, that would more than double the number of black patients who would receive extra help. That's absolutely crazy. Why was that happening? The issue behind the algorithm was that it assigned risk scores to patients on the basis of total healthcare costs accrued in one year. Basically, the company had to choose a metric for its algorithm, and the metric that they chose was future medical costs. The idea being that if you were high risk, you'd be sick and have a ton of medical bills. If you were low risk, you'd be healthy and have low costs. So this model would take a sick black patient and a sick white patient who are otherwise identical and say that the black patient will have lower health costs, so they're lower risk, so we as a healthcare system should pay less attention to them. Exactly. The model was really great at predicting healthcare costs, but healthcare costs are not a good measure of medical risk. There are many reasons that black patients may have a lower cost, including lower access to healthcare. Okay, so the idea here was to predict medical risk using healthcare expenditure. But as the authors have described, because society spends less on black patients than equally sick white patients, the algorithm understated the black patient's true needs. I think for me, this just highlights how important it is for technologists in healthcare to learn about other disciplines like history and social sciences, because it can be easy to miss a lot of these pernicious and dangerous patterns that are baked into AI algorithms if you were just coming at it from a purely technical perspective. Absolutely. And today we're speaking with Lana James, faculty of medicine and PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and the AI Medicine and Data Justice postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University. Her work examines how AI disrupts the practice of healthcare and lies at the intersection of race, ethnicity, medicine, public health, AI, and the law. And I expect our conversation will get into historical race disparities in medicine. And I want to give our listeners a heads up that this historical context can be difficult to hear because there's a lot of pain rooted in racism and medical mistreatment going back to slavery in the United States. But it's enormously important for practitioners of modern AI to hear. And I'm so excited to hear what Lana has to say. Can you maybe just briefly tell us about what your work is, what it is that you focus on, and uh, maybe how you got to this focus and, and what brought you here in the first place? 
Well, a number of things bring me to this place, but I think what's pertinent for this conversation is my work around race medicine. And so removing race medicine so that we can get better clinical um, experiences, population-based outcomes. Could you describe what race medicine is? Race medicine is a process by where in a clinical situation um, or a medical situation, an individual's socially constructed location in a category, i.e. are you Black, White, Hispanic, Native American, is used to assess whether a clinical condition is present or not or as a deciding factor. And often when we're speaking about race in medicine, especially in the Americas, we're actually using a code word for Black because we're typically almost always speaking about Black people because of how they're located in medicine. Mm -hmm. So in pulmonary lung function, once they're assessing you, they, when using the standard guidelines, will indicate your, quote, race. And then that race denotes a calculation, and that is a mathematical calculation that discounts or corrects for race. And this is a key aspect of race medicine. There's always typically a correction factor needed. Mm -hmm. And that correction factor is not based on population health studies or epidemiology or science. That, that correction factor actually is quite an arbitrary number, as is many of them throughout race medicine. And so when we say arbitrary, we mean that isn't able to be gotten through reproducible scientific results that don't start from a place of racial or scientific bias. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's important is always to just be open to what are the problems that we're seeing here? So yes, there's a problem that we're using, you know, race, a social construct as a biological key determinant in a diagnosis. When we say it's a social construction, we mean that it's whatever people kind of come to understand something to be, but there's no clear fixed set of ways of being. Someone who was determined to be black in 1910 may not be determined to be black in 2019. <laughs> But we also have, more importantly, a test itself that is flawed because the test itself isn't as valid, sensitive or accurate as one should be. And the question then becomes, why have we accepted that level of imprecision in an instrument that claims precision? Lana, I have a feeling that in order to best understand the work that you're doing today, our listeners and Nav and myself probably need a little bit of a primer on the history of race medicine. And I'm wondering if maybe you could just take us through that a little bit. What, what maybe like a history 101 on race medicine over the course of the last 200 years. I know that's a big ask in a short amount of time. Yeah. So I think that is a big <laughs> ask, but I think what we could do that would be relevant for that. I think that's a whole different podcast because um, the question is, you know, what point in history are we starting from? If we jump forward, just in terms of like, how is the history relevant to the question around race medicine, leaving out all some key details, is that it's largely based on the relationship of empire's definition of who matters. So empire are the, the, the families of Europe and the Christian church, as we yeah. know them. Because, um, you know, the boundaries have changed within Europe over time. But the nation states we now call France and Britain and Portugal and Spain and Germany um, and Netherlands. So all of these countries that were participating in the enslavement trade of the transatlantic, that entire mechanism was designed to accrue wealth through the inhumane process of human trafficking at a scale not seen in history, many argue. 
So when we talk about this, we're talking about a process by which you have to justify this. This is extreme violence, right? And so when we talk about race medicine, we're talking about a kind of medicine that is developed explicitly to justify and come to terms with the wanton disregard for humanity that is implicit and necessary for what the transatlantic African enslavement mm. trade was. And so Black people's bodies, whether they were alive in them or not, were used for dissection. A lot of what we know in ophthalmology comes from those slave ships that were floating laboratories. We know that in order to justify why you could treat a female in such a heinous way to be whipped at nine months pregnant to work when you're almost unable to walk, why was that acceptable when the conversation of the European lady and her genteel nature well, you had to reclassify her, not as her, but as it. Is this when you start to see that sort of, that split in myogenesis and polygenesis? Yes. Well, I mean, so the home of these racial categories is medicine. It's not literature and it's not anthropology. You know, even though people want to pass the buck, it's medicine. Medicine is the one that decided that they were going to take the responsibility of creating the taxonomies, right? So these are physicians, right? And so they decide that they're going to create a hierarchy. And of course, surprise, white men are at the top and surprise, black people are at the bottom. In that, there was a demarcation that the further away you went from whiteness, the closer you went to the animal hmm. There were two large groups of thought. There was the monogenesis group of the thought, which is where is one human species and it just it has different aesthetic appearances and phenotypes, but in essence, it is human. But in polygenesis, the primary premise is that where Black people are concerned, that they may share some characteristics, uprightness, right? The ability to talk. However, they are from a different branch. So far back, actually, the split is so far back in the branch that... Um, it's almost lost to memory. And so Black folks are from an, another line, another almost species, which I describe in my work as a speciation, right? And therefore, this, the idea of why one might be ill and what the site of disease um, origination and pathogenesis will therefore look different if you are using a polygenesis assumption as the beginnings of, quote, the human, or if you're using a monogenesis. Because if it's a monogenesis, then we're solving the same hmm. problem. Right? Because we're all in one species. Right. If we're in a polygenesis mindset, we need different tools to deal with this fundamentally human-unhuman line that we're crossing. Lana, just a, a question on that. So just fast-forwarding mm -hmm. to modern-day medicine, before we get into talking about mm -hmm. algorithms and how they play into the picture now, what are some modern day manifestations of the effect of the way one would think of monogenesis and polygenesis? The race correction factor, right? So this idea of adjusting or correcting for race, which is race medicine, right? Which is where we, we began, right? So Lana was going down the road and she's like, okay, um, we have a correction factor in almost every organ system because Western medicine is divided up by organ systems and disease profiles. And so when we look at the cardiopulmonary, so that's cardiac and pulmonary because blood and the heart go together, we have the pulmonary function test, right? So this is the test you take to determine asthma or COPD. It's in that battery. And so we have a race correction factor mm. there, right? And in kidney function, we also have a race correction factor or a race adjustment factor. We have them in cognitive tests. And so they are in many places, and I'm in the process of cataloging 
all of where they are in Canadian medicine. What I've come to notice in having conversations and discussing my work, and also because I participate in curriculum development at the University of Toronto, um, is how little the people who are practicing it and teaching it realize the relationship between that and their connections to racial capital processes. On race correction, could you describe what race correction is on a, on a uh, concrete level? So let's say someone is getting this pulmonary function test. How does the race correction fit in? Okay, so the race correction factor can arise in a number of sites. So I'll just start with what it is. So for folks who have gone for a test because they've had difficulty breathing, so if you've been tested for asthma, any kind of obstructive breathing, it's the test where you have to breathe very quickly and then wait and they give you these patterns. And you go through the test and then the point at which the race correction factor comes in is not the place where the patient is aware of it, but where we see it show up is either the rest tech, depending on the machine, will hit a button, literally, and if they self-identify as black or, or believed to be black by the technician, it just depends on what the procedure is, then that is already in the machine. So once it's clicked, it corrects for it, right? So there are machines manufactured with the race correction in it. And then... If you don't have that, the specialist does it. And so there is actually a mathematical calculation and it's basically whatever the number is that was spit out of the machine, discount, take away 10 or 15%. Where did that 10 to 15% come from? The 10 to 15% lesser lung capacity is what's um, attributed to, to Black people because they are Black. And this is how race medicine functions. It's, there's not a real deep rationale. It's when you follow the reference of the reference and you do the research, what you find is uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Samuel Cartwright. And he, like so many other doctors of his period before and after and into this moment, believed that medicine had a role to play in defining not only who was human, how human some of us were and some of us weren't, but his work went on to create instruments to validate this racial thinking. So it's really important to know the history because what we find is that Dr. Samuel Cartwright, who was a pro-slavery gentleman, a physician who believed and wrote about and expounded that without enslavement and forced labor, without white people in control of black people, that they would not fare well. And so these are the ideas that undergird and are at the foundation of pulmonary function testing and in respirology is what we call it in Canada. So I'm going to read a quote from Dr. Cartwright from the book, Breathing Race into the Machine, The Surprising Career of the Spirometer from Plantation to Genetics, written by Dr. Lindy Braun. You know, can't make this stuff up. And so when he's asked and challenged, how do you know this? How do you know that black people have lesser lung capacity? He says, quote, I answer by the spirometer. The deficiency in the Negro may be safely estimated at 20%. The expansibility of the lungs is considerably less in the black than in the white race of similar size, age, and habit. He goes on to say, to judge the Negro by spirometric observations made on the white man would indicate in the former a morbid condition when none existed, end quote. And so right here, we can see this kind of writing in contemporary journals that want to hold on to the rice correction factor. The language shifts a bit, but like in Cartwright's day, it's 
accepted that this is a, not a fringe idea, but a normal idea. And so it's important for us to understand that this is not abstract. It defines whether you're considered to need more investigation, to ascertain your clinical condition, whether a treatment plan is or isn't working. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding this. So it sounds like the race correction factor is essentially saying that Black people have to hit a higher bar of illness in order to be diagnosed with some disease. Or, or Black people, there are sort of different expectations for sickness or illness for Black people than there are for white people. Is that is that a fair simplification of, of the race correction factor? That is accurate. Okay. And so this is the idea of discounting. And, you know, when we go back again, why it's important to understand the histories of your discipline um, and and why discipline is so important to understanding um, how you're going to do the work that you do. How, how, are you a, how are you a physician? How do you make assessments? Has everything to do with how your craft, uh, how your discipline came into being and what informed- and It sounds like what you're saying is that this is so deeply embedded in the way that medicine is practiced now that physicians today don't even realize that they are sort of using this race correction factor. They just use what they think is sort of, you know, normal medical school training with, without realizing sort of the dangerous implications of this. Most definitely. So I want to ask about race correction when it is derived from population studies and there is a component of a lot of risk calculators that have race as one of the features. And the idea with some of these is that we can have culturally sensitive recommendations, maybe for heart attack risk, for example. What is the interplay between these population health derived calculators, which have race as one of the features? And what you've just described where there is racism that's embedded in a historical process that has no basis in science. Well, this is, this is the sweet spot, right? This is the necessary conversation. Um, and I think this is important as a necessary conversation because the culture of medicine historically has been very closed. Black folks have increasingly taken up roles in medicine and asked questions um, that have not been asked that were just taken as fact. What we know about medicine is that it's of two minds at the same time. Oh, there's, you know, there's only one species, the human species, but yet we have these instruments in medicine that don't line up. And we have studies in respirology and pulmonary function where you can see these tests, as you've described, um, looking for cultural sensitivity by creating ranges specifically for, quote, them. And I have to say, it sounds a lot like polygenesis, because this is the idea that the reference point has to be shifted. And the question we have to ask is, what was the original reference point and why is it being shifted to a within group reference point? If all humans are humans, why now do we need one uh, for Black folks and potentially X folks and Y folks and Z folks? Why do we need that? So when we think about these tests, because there are tests that say we need to correct for this and it's somehow it's an equity issue. And we go back to science and we say, but where's the science for this, right? And what we have is a bunch of self-referential. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they say, well, we have different ranges for black people than white people. And so therefore this is about race and therefore we need to correct for it and treat this group in this way. And what you are asking is a question about 
well, is that, does that not have some potential value? Um, and can it not be helpful? And if yes or no, um, how do we understand that? And my point to you is race medicine takes us away from answering the clinical question. And if we want to think about what is the impact on race, on outcomes, we can look at the social construction of how people are treated. We know that, for instance, if you're gonna consistently assess people and say that, well, they're naturally lower, you're gonna to fail to investigate a whole bunch of disease. How many people did you not assess because they didn't trigger your range? How many people's treatment plans weren't shifted at the right time because the tool isn't appropriately sensitive? And we can see it in kidney function. We have poor kidney function outcomes and we want to attribute it to race, but could it be a failure to assess accurately is having direct impact? Are there such strong remnants of polygenesis in medicine that has been taken for granted that we've now again found a logic? right? Another kind of racial logic to justify, well, we know, you know, we've had some pretty bad systems in the Americas for Black people because of slavery. And so it must have done something to them. We've just taken the argument now and made it sugar sweet, which is because of all that's happened, well, maybe that's it, or maybe it's genetic, maybe it's inborn, but it's not. So I want to understand the, the interplay between race correction and monogenesis. Is there a world in which the two can coexist with each other such that algorithms would have uh, race be included as one of the features, yet come at this, um, come at this question from the, from the perspective of monogenesis? I think this is, the, um, this is the spot that I'm at in my work, right? This is the tension. There are very few of us working on that who have the collective background to think through. And what I mean here is not just that we have different disciplines that I'm inquiring about, right? From medical sociology, from pathology, from renal, um, from philosophy, from bioinformatics. It's not just that I'm asking questions across these disciplines, but to be transdisciplinary means to go beyond and say, what is that next intersection that we can arrive at where we can do something new. And that's what's required to answer this because it's not as simple as can we keep race in there because race is a social construct fact. It's not biological, which is why we can share blood types and have children together and do a whole bunch of stuff. And so we do need to take it out, but we need to keep it in a certain sites. But are those the biological assessment sites is the question. And my answer here is no, it should not be part of the biological assessment because the people who are doing the biological assessment are typically physicians, lab techs, and clinicians who are so singularly and myopically trained in discipline that they do not have the ability or skills unless they get additional training to make that assessment. And so where we want to quote, look at the intersections of race with the impacts of it on biology. What we're actually not looking at is race, we're looking at racism. We're looking at, so how does society respond to that construction of that racial category? And if we have evidence that society responds to that racial category in a specific set of patterned ways, which we do for anti-Black racism, that is the point, but not in the biological clinical assessment. Is it fair to decompose the reasons for including race in any algorithm that's used for these risk predictions to say, okay, we have race as a social construct. Now, a lot of that uh, 
lot of the factors that we want to capture there might be uh, how race relates to culture. And the idea that if we used a single calculator uh, for everyone without including race, we would actually be hurting minorities by not making culturally sensitive recommendations. We are in an interesting place because that question holds a couple premises within it. And I'm going to challenge the premise of your question, right? Um, I, I love to engage in scientific inquiry because you have to ask, is the question I'm asking a robust sound question and is the premise accurate? And so I would argue that your premise has some flaws, which is that in fact, we can even measure race, right? And again, I'll come back to if we are going to take the bait on polygenesis, then the premise of your question may have validity. But I don't have evidence to support polygenesis. I have evidence to support monogenesis. And so the question again becomes, what would you be measuring? Could you, can you measure race? And we know the answer is no. We cannot measure race. We can measure the impact of people's experiences, perceptions, and responses to race, right? So we now have to do that work of figuring out what are we measuring when we want to say we want to measure race? Are we wanting to measure why is a group that has historically been and continues to be violently treated succumbing on the physiological plane to the impacts of that long-term violence, right? So we have research about that. And so I am not by any means advocating that we just strip everything of race to invent some colorblind world. Right? And this is where I say it's a delicate interplay. This is why we need methods and methodologies and need to be discussing this and, and arguing about it and coming to consensus about it so it doesn't turn into another plantation physician's discussion mm -hmm. where people from on high who have singular disciplines or maybe two or three haven't thought 360, right? And that's one of the things um, that has to be done like you have to go across discipline and look at methods and measurements and so if we want to ask how does being black affect your cardiovascular outcomes we know that that has more to do with how much time a physician is going to spend with you in an appointment and we know uh, that's less we know your referral path is decreased we know follow-up is less we know your insurability is, so we know that the vast majority of this is from the social construction of how the person experiences what I call physician and medical-induced health disparities, which is a large chunk. I think there are a couple of interesting points you made there that I, that I just want to highlight once again. So one of them is that, if I understand correctly, race is very, very approximate as a way of, uh, of categorizing and classifying and there are a lot of other factors that go into creating a fine-grained and correct uh, classification. And then the second is that it's really hard to get a causal understanding of what part of this is cultural, what part of this is biological, if any. It's hard to do studies that try to decompose these factors. So I'm curious, in terms of a next step that you see, you mentioned conversations as being an important part of uh, going about figuring out this next step. What would an outcome of that conversation or set of conversations over the next year or two look like? 
Um, it's about, it's, it's not just a conversation, it's about methods and methodology. It's about actually showing your long division because a lot of what's happened in medicine and in science has been this kind of assumptive use. So we've been talking about physician-induced health disparities, and I'd love to move on to big tech and the role that they play, because a lot of your work is about making sure that we don't replicate race-based medicine in our AI systems. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about how data sets today are holding up polygenesis and, and what we can do to try to, to try to move away from this potentially dangerous path that we're on right now. The, the first thing is to understand that is that I have not encountered a data set that is not engaged in polygenesis. And can you talk maybe about how they do that? What does it mean for a data set to impose that? All a data set is, is whatever data that they've collected in the past. So when I talk about pulmonary function tests has done this for 150 years, I'm talking about a process of generating a massive data set. So when they go through and want to say, hmm, how does this population perform in relation to pulmonary function tests and what are the potential patterns? So if you apply a deep learning algorithm to that, you're going to get, remember that bot that became like a white supremacist anti-black thing in like 2.2 seconds? Trained on Twitter? Well, that, that's, that is literally what our medical data sets are doing. So when we understand that the history of medicine is the present of medicine, because a data set can only be based on what you have. And even when you collect new things, it's only going to be based on what your system collects. Because the US and the big six tech companies and all of the quote innovation in medicine is largely coming out of the US, which is a system deeply ingrained in anti-black racial capitalism, this is why we need to have conversations about methods and methodologies because we are making the new world, right? We are making the future. And so if we want a future that is not full of race medicine and polygenesis, then we have to identify how are those data sets composed? Are we going to just strip race and pretend we're colorblind, which is completely unaccountable and irresponsible for where those markers exist? It starts from the beginning. We have to clean it from the beginning and make a decision to create a new future. One thing that a lot of people have suggested that these big tech companies or anyone dealing in large data sets should do is make sure that they have a more, quote, diverse data set. What's your take on that? I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why do we have data sets that are not representative? It's the outcome of a system, an economic system, and a political system, and a social system that was constructed by white Europeans, and that's what the historical record shows us, um, and that's what we are still dealing with today. And so it's more important that we stop participating in that system, that we pull back the bandages that are being papered over through this language of diversity and inclusion, and actually look at the gangrene that it's set in, because we don't just happen coincidentally to have a system that excludes Black and Indigenous and other peoples in the current configuration of artificial intelligence and data. It's not a coincidence. That's 
the outcome of systems and structures and the data sets that we're talking about will arise from those systems and structures. And that's why we have to be very wary of anybody that tells us they have a technical fix uh, to a problem that is actually one that we have to negotiate. And it has to be done by examining the facts rather than moving from false premises that somehow adding more people that you intentionally excluded and who are also treated economically and socially in very different and often negative ways, even though that's imprinted across all institutions and data files in various ways. The idea that you can just uh, tweak it by adding more is disingenuous and technically um, not a wise use of resources because it's going to produce more problems than it's going to, to fix. Could you give an example of what kinds of problems can arise, even in a data set that's racially diverse? If we think just about the article that was published in 2019, October in Science, authored by Dr. Obermeyer and, and colleagues, it provides a perfect example of why just simply adding more doesn't remedy the problem. And in this case, it was very straightforward in that when the algorithm was put into place, it was an algorithm based on prior health expenses, it skewed in favor of white patients because white patients historically have been the center of white clinical care, have had the economic incentives as well as the support to access medical care consistently. And so they had higher billings. Now, this algorithm affected 200 million people. And what was found is that 50% approximately of black folks who should have had access to the supportive care referral that the algorithm was supposed to facilitate didn't get it. And when we're talking about a population of 200 million people where this algorithm is functioning, it tells us how high the stakes are. So healthcare around the world has had a long-standing problem with racism. And we can see that in article after article and lawsuit after lawsuit. And it's not denied anymore and it hasn't been for some time. And so we know that when we do work with producing algorithms, we're working from historical data and that historical data comes out of a system of racial segregation and racism in healthcare and poor health outcomes. And so an algorithm that services more people than there are in Canada, almost four times more the population than Canada, was functioning and making it difficult, if near if possible, for Black folks to have access to very important care. Um, a couple things stand out here. This is to be expected, and it will be repeated and has been repeated many, many times. So it points out to us that the only reason this was found was because there was direct and clear access to the data, which is typically hidden behind administrative walls and proprietary contracts and claims. And so it tells us that we need regulations and laws that make it mandatory to see through things transparently, not just have them, quote, explained <laughs> to us. And also it tells us that when you simply add more, you don't question the premise. So if the premise was to ensure that there is good care offered to everyone who needs it, then that should have been the priority. And thinking through the steps to achieve that, rather than saying that billing expenses is a proxy for people who use care, and that somehow people who use care are actually the same people as the people who need care. And we need to actually think about how we need to frame the care that we need versus simply applying automated solutions that work on convenient data markers. This might be an oversimplification of the problem, but let's say that we wanted to create a deep learning model that took in mm -hmm. images of different skin diseases and was able to spit out mm -hmm. a classification for, for that skin disease, a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 
how would you mm. construct a data set in a way, right? The only way to train this model is to give it images. That's, that's how you train a deep learning model. Mm. In your ideal world, mm. how, would, how would you construct a data set in a way to do, to do that well, that, that didn't uphold polygenesis and that, and that still worked on all types of skin tones and how prevalent various skin diseases are? And so here, if you see the difference between your first question was a question about um, the solutions, right? The solutions about, oh, let's just do it using inclusion. And this is a group of solutions. Like, let's just use an inclusion idea that if we get more of these people, quote, that are missing, then we'll have a better data set and I'll be able to figure out patterns better. But it doesn't still deal with the fact that the data coming in is still going to be race and class and gender because it's coming from EMRs, it's coming from doctor's notes, it's coming from these places where we have strong evidence that we know racism is engaged in the practice of medicine. Now here you're, saying, you're talking about a question that's closer to science and less about the business of medicine. And so if we're looking at the science of saying, okay, we have a particular kind of cancer, then we actually need to sit down and talk about that particular disease profile and what are the hypotheses for how it comes to be and what its pathogen, what's path of illness is. And so this is why we have to be talking about methods and methodology. We can't just be saying yes to race-based data because race-based data leads to race-based medicine. And so we actually have to look at the illness and say, what are the defining features that allow us to complete a diagnosis? And where do we determine the gray zone? And then we would say, okay, for this image file, we need this many skin tones so that somebody could flick through and be like, okay, my patient is in this range. And let's now have a whole deck of images so that they can see which part it might be at with the notations of if an extreme sun, if, you know, um, already experiencing cancer, you know, the skin will be more gray. Because again, it's not a simple answer because if the patient already has an existing disease, their pallor and their skin texture may well be different. And so what we're talking about is the opportunity with AI to do better medicine. So that's why I say this is a wonderful opportunity to engage in a critical transdisciplinary dialogue and stop letting business solutions drive the science of health and the care and concern we have to have for each other as human beings. I think this is fascinating, sort of just this, this sort of bringing in business into the conversation, because I think we often forget to do that, especially, you're absolutely right, in the United States, specifically big tech and venture capitalists, right? They're the ones who are funding a lot of this, a lot of the most sort of exciting and, and cutting edge work that's happening today. I mean, maybe you can just talk very briefly about sort of what you, what you think big tech, are, are you hopeful about sort of how we're going to go forward? Do you think that they're receptive to this type of work in general? Am I hopeful? Uh, yes, I am, because we're seeing increasingly scientists, communities, everyday people across various parts of the world, you know, taking notice that artificial intelligence isn't all <laughs> that the marketing has promised. And in fact, the scientific literature and computational literature is increasingly showing that it can't deliver on its promises to decrease or eliminate bias and discrimination because, in fact, it's a very technology that reinstantiates it. 
the problems that we have with AI and, and big tech around data and racism are ones that have to be directly confronted and engaged and can't be patched over, where computational scientists are arbitrarily making decisions or corporations are creating categories in their databases without actually making sure that it's reflecting a reality. With regard to your second piece, are corporations and AI and big tech receptive? I think what we can see is that um, receptivity is directly tied to impact to their bottom line. And so where we've seen big tech and, and AI become a receptive to the kind of work that we've been discussing is where they've run up uh, against the penalties for their violations. And so in the European Union, they've developed GDPR, which are regulations to handle how data is stored, manipulated. And so we've seen the charges and the lawsuits laid for violations of GDPR, and they're in the billions of dollars, which seems to be about the right range that would be necessary for multi-billion and trillion dollar corporations in order to make a dent. And that's where we've seen some receptivity. And also as a result of the December 2020 push out, the debacle that Google led when they pushed out their lead AI researcher and ethicist, uh, a black woman who's very respected in the field for her work, that right there uh, spoke volumes. It did a particular kind of work that I don't know if they intended, but it did galvanize folks. And so that makes me hopeful that folks are paying attention, that uh, things aren't slipping under the radar, and that uh, people are holding these institutions and structures accountable and looking for the mechanisms to do that better. So I'm hopeful, I'm excited, and I'm looking forward to the work that we all have to do together to make sure that big tech and the tools of artificial intelligence produce the positive things that they can, but it's used judiciously and carefully, and the societal costs are actually measured, and that decisions are made in the best interest of society, not just the powerful and those who seek profits. Well, that's great. That's a great note. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Lana James for talking to us today, and thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. Many thanks to Alex Tampkin and Jared Quincy Davis. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.